another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. Sarah, do you ever feel like there's not enough stuff around these days? Totally. Yes, I'm feeling this, but it's just not that there's not enough stuff. I'm feeling like there's not enough of the right stuff, Taylor. Like, if I think about it, I could get one of those battery-powered back massagers for my office chair or something like that. I could get that delivered to my doorstep by tomorrow evening. But if I want something like an electric car or even some types of medicine, I feel like I would be waiting for months. Yeah, the shelves have no cold medicine on them anymore <laughs> at, at all. So don't best not to get sick. But a growing number of economists and policy people are recognizing that this is a problem that's not going away. And they're saying that we need to think about the economy differently. And, you know, for a long time, we've run the most efficient supply chains possible with resources and labor spread all over the world. And that's done some good things. It's lowered prices and made it really cheap to buy that back massager that you want off of Amazon. But <laughs> now they're saying that because there's not enough stuff and some of the most important stuff that we need, we should start making more of it here at home. Definitely, including cough syrup. Um, so today, yes, we're going to talk about all of that uh, supply chains, globalization. We're going to ask our guests whether we need to build more stuff at home and how the economy, especially the energy part of the economy, is changing. We're kind of going to dig into what Canada's competitive advantage is and what it's going to look like in future. And we have the perfect guest today to talk about all of this. Sean Spear is the editor-at-large of The Hub. He's a fellow in strategic competitiveness at the Public Policy Forum. He's also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And he was also a top economic advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Sean, thank you so much for coming on Free Lunch. Yeah, thanks for having me and congratulations on the new podcast. So to set the stage, I guess, for this conversation, and we're doing it around a recent report that you've written, which for those interested in listening, it's called The Urgent Case for a Supply Rebuild. And in it, you and your co-author wrote that the world has struggled to find a new economic model for nearly 5,000 days since the 2008 mortgage crisis. Wondering if you can explain what that means and how the lack of what you call a clear script has contributed to some of the supply problems we're seeing today. There's been a lot of commentary in the past several years trying to explain why Western politics and political economy has seemed uh, a bit chaotic, a bit unrooted. You know, so one line of argument is that that the trends and forces of globalization have have resulted in particular sectors or particular workers or even particular regions experiencing, you know, something of economic stagnation. And that's come to manifest itself in political forces like populism. You know, there's another line of argument that it's about, you know, rising levels of immigration and people reacting to the changing demographics of their society and a sense that they are losing power and influence in the economy or politics. And I can go on and on, Taylor and Sarah, in terms of these different efforts to explain why we seem to be in something of a period of, of political instability and, and, and frankly, chaos. And the truth is they all probably have some degree of explanatory power. But I think 
a key thesis of this paper co-authored with Ed Greenspawn is that in hindsight, we've been operating without a, a kind of intellectual foundation in our politics and policymaking, by which I mean, you know, from the mid-1970s when, say, Frederick Hayek wins the Nobel Prize, and later that decade when Margaret Thatcher is elected in the UK and, and, and Ronald Reagan's elected in the United States, there was a kind of prevailing set of ideas about the role of markets, the role of government and the economy, a kind of predisposition to limited government, free trade, et cetera, et cetera. Your listeners will know that basic economic script. And our argument in the paper is, in hindsight, the collapse of Lehman Brothers signaled the kind of end of that policymaking paradigm. We didn't necessarily know it at the time, but it seems increasingly clear in hindsight. And the challenge, of course, is there hasn't been a kind of successor paradigm to replace it. And and so one of the main reasons in our view that things have seemed so chaotic is that we've been kind of going about it without a, a script, as you put it. And a, a major goal in this paper is to try to start to build support amongst policymakers, opinion leaders, and the general public for a new script that we think can better root our politics and and policymaking. So, so let's talk about that. There is this also kind of high-level argument that you make about the need to increase the supply of kind of, quote, things, ideas, and people, which, you know, means things like the supply of housing to hydrogen. You mentioned quantum computing to IP, to ICUs, to critical minerals, to all of these long-term you know, types of investments, human capital as well. Can you pick apart why this is important and how it's different than the status quo right now? Yeah, I think one way in which our political class not just in Canada, but really around the Western world, has sought to deal with the absence of of a intellectual architecture or or paradigm or ideational framework or whatever one calls it, is that we've effectively tried to protect or maintain the status quo, which is kind of like a, a somewhat understandable human impulse. When you're kind of operating without a safety net, you, your instinct is about protection and security. So the you know our argument would be that the in the absence of that framework we've seen a, a real emphasis on the demand side of the economy to try to in effect protect people's ability to consume to to you know try to stabilize and and even boost economic activity on the demand side through you know ultra low interest rates a focus uh, redistribution in, in our tax and transfer system, etc. And a major consequence of this, in our view, overemphasis on demand, of course, has been the our recent experience with inflation. And so we make the case in the paper that we ought to shift our focus from the demand side of the famous supply-demand equation to the supply side. We need to commit ourselves, Taylor and Sarah, to an economic agenda focused, in short, on more stuff. And as you say, Sarah, it's really across the board from housing to healthcare to biomedical technologies to advanced manufacturing. I mean, one can, new sources of energy, one really can go down the list. The way to kind of break out of the 
secular stagnation that has really been a defining feature of our economy since the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the and the onset of the global financial crisis is a renewed focus on the supply side of the economy. So what does that look like in in practice? Because I think because we've lived with it for so long, we're all kind of familiar with how governments look at and adjust the demand side variables in the economy, right? If you want more consumption, you can lower taxes. If uh, people can't go to work because of a pandemic, you can send out checks. That is all very familiar to us. But I think what you're talking about in terms of building supply and productive capacity is maybe less familiar to to a lot of us. So can you break down what that looks like in terms of concrete policy if you were to pursue that agenda? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a great insight, Taylor. I would say one way to think about this agenda is is having two separate yet related components. The first is what I would describe as catalyzing supply. So using the tools of public policy to try to support the private sector in producing supply, particularly in areas where there may be um, what economists would refer to as market failure. So think, for instance, we're working towards this goal of uh, net zero emissions by 2050. You know, your listeners will know that the ultimate means to get there is through technological innovation. Um, but there will there's going to be some apprehension on the part of the private sector to kind of invest sufficiently in these new technologies because of the uncertainty of returns, et cetera, et cetera. So here's a case where there's probably a role, a more active role for government to try to catalyze more private investment in the production of new and more sources of energy. And how that manifests itself in policy could be, you know, any number of tools to try to de-risk and 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 stimulate that kind of investment from direct subsidies to free loans to even equity stakes on the part of of the government. The second component of a modern supply side agenda would be about unblocking supply. You know, listeners will know that there are various ways in which governments intentionally or inadvertently can impede the private sector's capacity to build and produce. You know, think, for instance, of stringent land use regulations, which can impede the market's ability to produce and build housing supply. You know, just this week, we're recording this, I guess, on November 17th, just a couple of days ago, I was speaking to a group of contractors about procurement restrictions in the city of Toronto, uh, which precludes or prohibits certain types of construction firms from bidding on public infrastructure projects that have the effect of raising infrastructure project costs by something like 14 to 20%. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So I guess that's a really long way of saying, Taylor, that uh, one way to think about the modern supply side agenda is that there will be a, a kind of active role for government to address market failures and catalyze the supply, particularly of new or emerging technologies, and then this unblocking role where it's it's not it's the opposite of active. It's government, in effect, re- removing barriers to the the market from properly functioning in 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 the form of building and and production. I think you need both components if we're going to achieve the kind of boost of supply that that we think is necessary to get at the heart of 
of the supply constrained economy in which we in which we find ourselves. So sticking with the active role of the state in this, you mentioned some examples of things that policies that they might take on, like subsidizing certain technology development. And I'm thinking about this piece that Paul Wells wrote in response to the report, essentially saying, you know, a lot of people would just say this is exactly what the current federal government is already doing with various tax credits for renewable energy and, you know, some level of investment in things like critical mineral extraction, that sort of thing. Is that what you have in mind? Or is this something bigger than what's currently on the on the agenda? Well, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. You know, for, First of all, it seems to me that one way in which what we're talking about differs is that there needs to be a greater intentionality out of federal policy on some of these issues, that there's seems to be a kind of tendency towards a tax credit or a boutique subsidy program for each and every technology that you know that may be part of our climate agenda you know i think there's a case for i i, I think a, a bit more realistic view about where there may be comparative advantages or promising opportunities and and then you know really focusing on on those areas you know one example for instance would be carbon capture utilization and storage technology where Canada seems to have something of a comparative advantage. The second thing I would say, though, is that, and it speaks to something I mentioned earlier, Taylor, whereas even where I think the federal government is moving in the right direction, and you know, I take Paul's point that there, there are, there's obvious overlap between what we're talking about and what the government's doing, is it needs to be married with the, the second part of the agenda, the unblocking part, you know, the government has set this mandate of 100% electric vehicle production by sometime next decade. And as you say, is unroll, uh, rolling out some of these various uh, subsidy programs to try to catalyze the production of those vehicles. But if we don't address the supply constraints on the inputs, including critical minerals, uh, then, then there's no point in in boosting demand or amongst consumers or even supply in terms of of the ability to manufacture electric vehicles. The 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 two parts, the catalytic role and the unblocking role, it seems to me, are at the core of a supply side agenda. And I, I think I think a legitimate criticism of the Trudeau government is it's predisposed to the catalytic part, but has neglected the unblocking part. And if I'm being fair. I would say the Conservative Party under Pierre Polyev has found its voice on the unblocking part, but is seems more averse to the to the more active catalytic role for public policy, and, and it seems to me risks succumbing to some of the same limitations, but just but just in the the opposite way. So, in your view, Sean, like, what's the? Could we unpack a specific industry just to kind of use as an example? I know the EV transition is one that people have been thinking about a lot recently, and you know, you just mentioned it as well. And so, when you talk about, you know, even being able to boost the supply of raw minerals, I guess in this case, what's a pointed way that the government could kind of address that piece specifically when it comes to unblocking? Just using that industry as an example. It's such a great question, Sarah. There's 
there's like a cognitive dissonance going on in a lot of the discourse about EVs, where at least in some circles, where on one hand, you know, the Trudeau government and and a lot of its supporters are really committed to to EVs, and we've we've already talked a bit about some of the policies that we've seen to boost demand amongst consumers and even support manufacturers as they transition their productive capacity from conventional oil and gas vehicles or conventional internal combustion engines to to EVs. At the same time, though, government is imposing more restrictions and regulations on the mining sector. You know, there's some estimates that it now takes something like 16 years um, from early identification of, of minerals to getting your permits approved and starting extraction. Well, 16 years is almost where the government's mandate of 100% EV production will find us. And so it's just, there's this incompatibility between these two ideas. And so, you know, if you're genuinely committed to environmental action, to progress on EVs, then you need to be committed to a regulatory environment when it comes to mining, for instance, that is far more expeditious and streamlined than our our current system. It's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like what you're describing can be applied to like every area of the economy where we're kind of seeing problems, right? We're seeing a big mandate or a promise, right? Like I think the, the immigration numbers that have just come out, the commitments to, you know, you know, welcome a million or so people over the next few years. And then, you know, meanwhile, there's kind of this huge, I guess, supply squeeze with housing. I mean, it seems like this is something that can kind of get copied and pasted over to, to different industries. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is in your view, why is that breakdown happening? Why is it happening in so many areas. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I'm speculating a bit. You know, I think one problem is the tendency for government to operate in a in a siloed way. That stands in the way of thinking about these problems holistically. So, you know, it's, it, I'm not overstating things. I spent time in Ottawa. And so the immigration department is responsible for producing the annual intake target. And the Minister of Immigration gets to make this a net popular announcement where he or she announces the sticker number. But then it's other departments, or in this particular case, it's other orders of government that are actually responsible for the kind of underlying policies that are going to ensure the success or failure of kind of operationalizing that sticker promise, right? Um, and and so I, I think you know part of it is the tendency to think about public policy question, issues or questions in a silo. Part of it is that politicians like to make the kind of popular parts of these announcements or decisions without necessarily being prepared to align policies where there may be greater political risks. You know, I'm sure there's a whole host of other explanations, but I think you're, you know, you've struck at the kind of nub of the issue, which is on virtually any range of issues from housing to healthcare to the success of our immigration system to our audacious yet important goals on net zero emissions, we need to make sure that we're aligning our our goals with a whole range of policies to ensure that we have sufficient supply of things, people, and ideas to, to ultimately meet those goals. So can I ask you who or what country, I should say, is doing this well, if any? Are there any examples that you can think of that we should be 
referencing, referencing as we look to solve these problems? Like what places have done this successfully? I, 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 I think it's, it's hard to say that anyone has done it comprehensively well. Like that is to say across different sectors or across different issues. I think you can point to successful models in particular cases. You know, you know listeners may be familiar for instance, with the state of Texas and its land use policy regime, which has enabled massive growth without the kind of inflationary effects on on housing prices. Are you able to to describe that in a little bit more? Because I'm not familiar with that. So this Houston and Austin in particular are are often held up as having the kind of most small liberal land use regimes of any major city in North America that that the process for for permitting and and zoning is inexpensive and expeditious that property owners have a tremendous amount of kind of empowerment or autonomy to shift property from say commercial to residential or or mixed or whatever with pretty minimal interference or interaction with the government. And, you know, one can contrast that with the experience in the city of Toronto or the city of Vancouver or really any other major city in North America. You know, there's pretty compelling evidence that a combination of development charges, land use restrictions, etc., have a direct and kind of causal effect in, on one hand, minimizing the pr- production of supply, and then, and then on the other hand, raising the cost of of housing, you know, so I think a lot of people, when they're uh, thinking about the ho- housing affordability conundrum, are drawn to Austin and Houston as potential models for reform. But, but just to come to Sarah's bigger picture question, I think the short answer is is no. That that what we're talking about in this paper, incidentally, is becoming the source of growing intellectual convergence. On the left, in the right, on in places like the United States or the United Kingdom, where there's a growing recognition that we need something like a renewed emphasis on the supply side. You know, in the U.S., just in the past 36 months, we've seen um, articles or essays or papers by people as diverse as Tyler Cowen, the libertarian economist at George Mason University. Mark Andreessen, who, you know, the technologist and, and investor who a lot of your listeners might be familiar with, but also progressives like Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist, Derek Thompson, the Atlantic writer who writes about an abundance agenda. Um, one of the reasons why Ed Greenspan and I are so enthusiastic about this idea is that in an era of growing political polarization, we see at least the broad goal of boosting supply in our economy as a potential source of political convergence, where the disagreements, no doubt, will manifest themselves is in the kind of relative balance between that active catalytic role versus the more, for lack of a better term, libertarian unblocking role. But but at the at its core, I you know, it seems to me this is becoming something that both the left and the right see the need to to, to kind of focus our attention on. So I feel like not that long ago, probably before the pandemic, if you were talking about something like this, people would say something along the lines of, well, we don't need to build any of this stuff here. 
we'll build it in a country where there's a big pool of affordable labor. The product will be cheaper for the consumer over here. It's a more efficient supply chain. The breakdowns from in supply chains caused by the pandemic obviously forced us to rethink some of that. But at the same time, the pandemic is a once, I mean, hopefully once in a lifetime event, fingers crossed, not to jinx it, but do we really need to rethink our entire globalized economic system of trade and just-in-time supply chains because of this one event? Or is there a deeper reason why we should be building more of the things we need in our own backyard rather than overseas? This is obviously the subject of some debate. I'd say two things. The first thing I'd say is I think I think there are various reasons behind the case for some kind of reshoring of production that aren't limited to the pandemic, but have been exacerbated or, or intensified by the pandemic. And I, you know, it seems to me that we are living through what has been described as the rise of a great power competition between the US and China. Some people describe it as the new Cold War. Um, but the point is that there are certain instances, it seems to me, where our interests or focus on national security ought to trump our fidelity to free markets, where you know it seems to me we have a national interest in ensuring the production in particular strategic areas like, say, vaccine production, where I think there's a role for public policy to help to pr- produce that, that market outcome. The second thing, though, related is I think we need to be kind of clear-eyed about how we make those judgments. Because I, I suspect some of your more libertarian listeners are probably thinking, like, holy smokes, that sounds like a pretty slippery slope. If we decide we need to produce v- vaccines here and we're prepared to use subsidies and, and, and other policy tools to achieve that outcome, how do we distinguish between, say, that and T-shirts, where it's pretty hard to make the case that we have a national interest or national security need to, 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 to bring to reshore T-shirt production. And I, I think that's a legitimate concern, but I, I don't think it's insurmountable that there, there are different frameworks. You know, the World Bank, the IMF, and other scholars have produced, you know, what amount to kind of checklists to to try to, you know, in a prudential way, make those judgments about what are productive capacities that are genuinely strategic in nature that amount to national security priorities, where you're prepared to interfere in the proper functioning of the market to be able to to have those capacities at home. I'll, I'll just make one final point. We're seeing this play out in real time on my own podcast, Hub Dialogues. Just this week, I recorded an episode with Tufts University professor, Chris Miller, who's written a book called The Chip War and the efforts on the part of the American government through the CHIPS Act to try to reshore the, the capacity to produce microchips and semiconductors because of their dual purpose. They're not only integral inputs to a lot of consumer goods, um, but they are also kind of foundational technologies for modern weapon technology. And so I, I think we're going to see more of this, not less of this in the coming years. And the, the question will be, how do we kind of put belt and suspenders on it so we don't give up all of the benefits of global trade and, and globalization, but we still preserve our kind of national 
interests and, and, and national security. Well, I'm glad you mentioned semiconductors, actually, because I think that's a good example of one of the commodities that raises questions for me about this, because semiconductors are very hard to build, as you know, very expensive to build. I think basically only Taiwan is capable of producing the most sophisticated semiconductors. So when we're talking about onshoring manufacturing capacity, where does Canada fit into that picture? It seems unlikely to me that we're going to become a big semiconductor powerhouse in the future. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But is our role extracting resources, mining lithium and, and nickel and these sorts of things? Or where do we fit in to this, the value chain, I guess? Yeah, you know, kind of implicit in your in your observation is the idea that you know, while we may be prepared to intervene in in the market to ensure greater reliability of supply of certain technologies or certain productive capacities, we need to recognize that this is probably going to have to be carried out on a regionalized base or maybe amongst countries with similar interests or values, what U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called friend-shoring. It's also been called, called allied-shoring in some circles. That the goal can't be to kind of replicate the productive capacity in each instance in each country. You know, It would be enormously costly, highly duplicative, highly distortionary, etc. But I do think, you know, and this is a good example, there's, you know, it seems to me a self-evident opportunity on a binational basis with the United States to establish and strengthen a, a North American capacity to produce semiconductors that, that leverage our relative comparative advantages and protect us from the economic and geopolitical risks of being so dependent on a, a single source of a technology, which now has really become kind of foundational to the consumer economy but also to, to military technologies. I want to piggyback on Taylor's question with, with respect to friend shoring and, and you bring up America now and kind of what our role is in relation to them, because it's exciting the thought of this kind of friend shoring camp and like all of North America kind of comes together and we kind of allocate resources accordingly and kind of everyone ends up getting exactly what they need. But I wonder if there are any kind of either, I guess, limitations to engaging in such an agreement with America and if kind of diving even deeper into that, I mean, how do you see their role compared to Canada's in the sense of like when we're thinking even about chips and car manufacturing, I mean, where does, are there limitations to that relationship and, and how do we, you know, fall into, fall into our own grooves, I guess. No, it's a great question. I, I would just say that what I'm talking about isn't merely an abstraction or a, a a kind of theoretical idea of the possible that we have in modern history been able to work out what isn't precisely free trade. It's more of a kind of managed trade model, but your listeners might be familiar with the auto pact where we had a kind of a conception of a North American production capacity that involved you know, a combination of continental quotas and and kind of shared production that worked 
reasonably well for the two countries. And so, you know, it seems to me there's an opportunity to kind of replicate the auto pact in other areas just with, you know, I just come back to the caveat. It ought to be done in a way that recognizes that all things being equal, we, we, we should want markets to function as, as freely as possible. But there may be certain areas like semiconductors, like vaccine production, like energy, where our national interests or national security considerations trump our fidelity to, to, to markets. I guess just the second thing I'd say quickly, Sarah, because I, I think it's implicit in your question is, you know, a, 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 a rebuttal would be that's all well and good to talk about the auto pack, but the American political system is more dysfunctional, less reliable. How can we ensure that we could work out some kind of, of bilateral arrangement and have confidence that, that it would have a degree of durability? And I think that's actually a legitimate concern. You're, you're, Listeners will probably know that the massive electric vehicle subsidies in the US, for instance, which were produced by Congress with like a very narrow focus on American interests and the American national economy, came to kind of buck up against the goal of a continental or, or bilateral production market. And it's taken real efforts on the part of the Canadian government, the automakers and others, to try to push American policymakers in a different direction. So I guess it's a very long way of saying, I, I think it's possible, you know, if I was advising the prime minister, I would be leaning into this as like the principal bilateral priority for Canada, you know, putting forward ideas to Washington, whereby, you know, Canada becomes the principal source of critical minerals for a continental EV production capacity that really you know, sees it for all intents and purposes, a kind of invisible border between the two countries when it comes to production. I think that would be good for our economies. It would be good for our national security. And at least in the case of EVs, it would actually, it would also be good for the environment. So I want to bring it back to how does this impact the life of a regular person in Canada? How does this debate, how is it going to change their experience with the economy? when they're going to the store to buy something, when they're trying to save up for a house? like Why should people care about this as a policy priority? I mean, because they're living through you know, one of the most dramatic experiences of inflation that we've had in you know, something approaching 40 years. And there are different factors behind our current bout with inflation. But one of the major ones, and one of the ones for which we have control, is the supply side of our economy. And you know, if this hasn't brought to the attention of ordinary Canadians the need to kind of unleash the supply side of, of the economy, then I'm not sure what else will. And let me just make one kind of broader, somewhat philosophical, but I think important point, guys, is that you know, for the past several decades, we've come to kind of idealize people as consumers. A lot of the a lot of the justifications for globalization and global trade has been, of course, that it would lower consumer prices, right? And there's like there's obviously something to that. And I think there's there's compelling evidence that it has broadly worked out in that regard. 
But I think it was a pretty thin conception of how people think about their own lives and think about their place in the society that people have a kind of innate need or sense that they are productive. And I think one of the reasons that we've seen such a rise in in social pathologies like substance abuse and family breakdown and criminality, et cetera, in places that were deindustrialized, you know, what has been described as the deaths of despair is that people lost that sense of identity as being productive members of the economy and society. So, you know, I think that what we're talking about isn't just an economic case. It's a, a way to kind of reorient how we think about people and their needs and that the consumer-oriented approach of the past several decades lost the importance that people place on being productive. And in that sense, I think this message and this agenda will find real resonance with people who you know, want to be part of building stuff. And, you know, that that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm kind of optimistic that it it'll find kind of resonance with policymakers across the spectrum. And then the question for them will be how do they bring expression to it in a way that reflects their own preferences about the role of government and and so on and so forth. Okay. Well I think that's a great place to leave it. I feel like we could talk about this for another hour or two. So we'll have to have you back at some point in the future. Sean, to continue this conversation, because I think we're only going to see more talk of this, and it's only become a bigger part of the economic discourse in the country. So I really appreciate your taking the time to chat with us about it. Well, I'm I'm honored to, to join you guys. And again, congratulations on the podcast. I'm a big fan of the newsletter. And, and now that you're branching out into podcasts, you, you'll, I'll, I'll, you'll become part of my regular rotation. So awesome. glad, to, to, glad to be on it early that. and Look forward to joining you again soon. So, Sarah, that was a really interesting talk with Sean. I feel like there was a lot to take away from there. This is a, a big change from the way that we've been doing things my entire life, you know, for the past 40, I'm not 40, but for the past 40 or 50 years, the way we've done things, this is this is a big change. Definitely, definitely. I think the 5,000-day number is is a striking one because it kind of it, it shines a light on you know us kind of going at this not totally blind but just without maybe uh, that clear direction that that Sean was talking about but what i was also thinking was really interesting was when Sean mentioned that you know this also goes beyond uh a need from an economic policy standpoint right like this goes into a need that the general population has to be involved in the economy and to be productive and to kind of quote, make stuff. And I thought that piece of it was really timely and an interesting takeaway as well. Yeah, I feel like we could have done a whole other episode and maybe we should at some point just going into the details of how that really plays out in in reality for Canadians. Because, you know, as Sean and we sort of alluded to, in the episode, some of the work that Canada is going to be doing if we do adopt this new model is difficult work, you know, mining, natural resource extraction, these sorts of things. Those are those are tough jobs. And I think it'd be interesting to dig in deeper on reconciling 
the benefits of doing more of that here and and having those jobs here with also the reality that they're not the most pleasant jobs to do. And do we really have enough of a workforce to do all that work here? I don't know. I think that's something that would be interesting to explore more. Definitely. We could have a whole different conversation on that. It seems like there's so many industries that we touched on during our conversation. We talked about the supply of semiconductors. We talked about electric vehicles. I think there's a talent piece to that as well. But even looking at the industries on the whole, it seems like there's such a delicate balance that needs to be struck within each of these different industries. And then a delicate balance that needs to be struck between the countries that, you know, exist in North America in terms of us operating with the US and 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 Mexico potentially as well to to figure out what what an agreement like the one that Sean referenced to could look like. But I'm looking at all of this and it's a lot of moving moving pieces and we could explore every aspect of this conversation deeper for sure. Okay. Well is that a good place to leave it for now? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch. I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me at Sarah Bartnika on Twitter. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can follow me at Taylor Scollin on Twitter. And follow our guest as well, Sean Spear. He's at Sean underscore Spear. And he also publishes at The Hub. And that's at www.thehub.ca. You should really do that. Both are very insightful and sometimes very entertaining as well. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can check out our daily news podcast. It's called The Peak Daily. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe to our daily newsletter covering the top businesses, business and tech stories that matter most to Canadians at readthepeak.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye.